Hello, ABF family. We are so excited that you have chosen to join us on our online service. Well, we would love to connect with you and support you in any way we can. So go ahead and text us at 97000 and let us know what's going on in your life. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Man, our, our staff team loves to support you. We love to pray for you. So make sure that we hear from you this week. Well, for those of you that live locally, man, we'd love for you to come out to the church and get involved. There's so many ways that you can get involved here, jumping into a Bible study, a service project, or one of our children's events. Man, check out our website at agorabible.org to find out more information. Well, our ongoing ministries are only made possible through your generous financial support. So if you'd like to give a donation, uh, go onto our website and hit the Give tab. Well, I hope you are excited to dive into God's Word. Well, before we begin, let's just bow for a word of prayer. Father God, we just invite your Spirit to work in and through us. God, we love you so much, and we are just... Awesome. It's awesome that we can open up your word and that you speak to us. So Lord, as the word is presented, may we have ears and hearts that are open, ready to hear from you. We love you so much and we thank you for your goodness in our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks, Adrian, and welcome to our online Easter service. Before I dive into our uh, time in the Word, I just wanted to have you get a chance to, to check out this video of just one of the cool stories coming from our church family. My name's Danny Duran. My name is Wendy. And we've been attending ABF for about a year and a month. We have two kids, Danny. Uh, he's Danny the third. He's 11 years old. And we have Abigail, and she's eight. We both lived in Costa Rica. My parents moved there when I was little because they just loved the country so much. And at the age of 18, I got my first job at an office um, where I met Danny. I remember the first day she walked into the office. I remember she had a little hop in her step. And I was like, I told my buddy, Dibs. <laughs> we started dating and were serious right away, pretty much. And we decided to get married. We decided to move back to the United States when we discovered my son had a, uh, a ball growing on the side of his cheek. We found out that basically he had what they call a venous malformation. And the doctor, she says, where is he from? You're speaking to him in English. And I said, I'm from California. And she's like, oh, go there. But we didn't know we were moving out here. We thought we were gonna come get him medically taken care of, and then move back out. Seven or eight doctors walked into the exam room, and they're like, hi, this is your team, and we're like bawling, just like bawling, like we're here to help you guys. This is all gonna be done with microscopic injections. And the ball was gone. It was gone, no surgery, they didn't have to cut open my baby, and by that time it had been almost six months we were in California, maybe a little bit more. And we're like, okay, it's gone, so let's move back to Costa Rica. And all three of them are like, <laughs> we're not going back to Costa Rica. So they wanted to stay here. And the Lord used our son as the guide to bring us here. We weren't walking in the ways of the Lord at that time. When I started with my social media business, I got really involved in crystals, in 
Reiki and psychics, tarot readers. And at the same time, my husband was working in the gambling industry still at this point. So our jobs, I feel, brought a lot of darkness into our home, a lot of stress, a lot of bad influences in our home, and a lot of smoke. Smoke. We were both smoking at the time. We were at the playground one day, and a neighbor asked me if I was Christian, and I said yes, and she asked me if I was going to a church, and I said no. Uh, so she told me about the Awana program and said, my daughters go to Awana, and I think your kids would love it. The kids loved it. Without any biblical or spiritual background, they both immediately accepted Jesus and accepted the Lord and wanted to be involved. The kids came home and they were like, you guys got to go to church. We're like, oh, okay, let's, let's, let's go to, let's just check it out. And we came to ABF and Pastor Kegel was, was teaching that weekend. And I was like, this is what I need. This is, this is what I need in my life. I had been smoking pot since I was uh, 12 years old. I never ever found a reason to want to stop smoking. I decided I'm going to submit to my Lord and surrender smoking to him. And he's like, I got you. He's like, I got you. And I was able to quit that day. I always thought it was going to be the hardest thing in the world. And I didn't know that he was going to make it so easy for me to quit. I told Danny, I feel like we need to get rid of everything in this house that is not pleasing to God. Everything. So we got a big box. It was a big box. And we put everything in there, everything. All our weed paraphernalia, all our crystals, all our idols and fake gods. We have a hiking trail right next to our house. We went there in the middle of the night and we dumped everything in the mountain. We started tossing everything to the mountain. The paraphernalia went in the trash dump. I just started attending men's groups and volunteering around the church, learning more about the Lord, learning more about being more like Him and less like the world made me a way better father, a way better husband, and a way better, like, man. I feel like I'm a completely different person than I was a year and a few months ago. Like, I, I don't like old me, and uh, I, like, I like new me. There is a song, that, it's a Christian song that starts off something like, things are getting real, Jesus take the wheel. I deal with every situation, like, just let him, let him, let him, let him take the wheel, and he'll help you get through this, and he's helped me every step of the way. Pretty encouraging to see how God is working in families here at uh, ABF, meeting us at our point of need. And really, the Bible isn't uh, our greatest hits account. There's still new stories being, uh, new songs being written uh, present day. And so thankful for them sharing their testimony. It leads into our topic this week, which is obviously on Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the really, if you think about it, the most significant event in human history. It's not just a, a feature of the Christian faith. It's literally the main event. And why is that? It's the main event because our rescue hinges on it. In fact, the Apostle Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You see, his death provided payment for our sins that were demanded by a righteous, just, and perfect God. 
He absorbed the penalty that was intended for each one of us. He took it and placed it on himself. And then after absorbing all of that, after dying, he shows victory over all of it by coming back to life. And what's so neat about that is it's not just a, a big event for in human history or big picture. It's also something that's personal. As we're going to see in this account found in John chapter 20, it's something that didn't just in, impact the world. It's something that impact each one of his followers personally. They came away from it never to be the same. And that's my hope and my prayer as we're spending time in the text today is that we would have a genuine personal encounter with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me pray toward that end before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much just for this chance to spend time reflecting on what you've done for us, the sacrifice that was made, the, the, the extent of love that was demonstrated for us, God. We ask that we'd be just moved, we'd be challenged, that we'd be encouraged. All the things that you do when we are diligent in your word here today, we invite that in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be working through the entire chapter of chapter 20, which is the full account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's kind of a, a cool story, definitely a lot of twists and turns in it. Uh, for those of you that are maybe newer to listening, we're going to be working through from the ESV, which uh, stands for the Extra Spiritual Version. Uh, I joke, but we're working through that uh, version of the Bible starting in chapter 1, says this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's how John refers to himself, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciples who had reached the tomb, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. All right, we'll stop there for some explanation. I don't know if there's anyone in our audience, listening audience today that would describe themselves as kind of slow on catching on to things. You're not necessarily the first one to, to get a joke. If you were left in an escape room, you'd be like, I'll never get out of here. I was talking with some of our staff about this, kind of who's that person on our team. And one person mentioned that their, their spouse, after they make a joke and they can see, see their wheels turning, they'll say, Did, have you gotten there yet? Are you there yet? In other words, have you figured it out? If you think about that, that's a good description of the early disciples. They're a little slow in connecting the dots. They didn't piece it all together immediately. 
You see what's happening here is Mary Magdalene. She's the very first to arrive as described. If you're not familiar with who Mary Magdalene is, you can read her story in Luke chapter 8. You might remember she was one that was possessed by seven demons that Jesus set free, that he cast out the demons and completely radically changed her life. If you've watched The Chosen, it was in one of the early episodes that gave that account. And it's probably one of the more memorable ones that I can think of, just the, the power of the freedom that Jesus brought, the love, the compassion that, she that he demonstrated to her. So she's very first to arrive. And she immediately, upon seeing that the stone, which would have been a massive one, was removed from the tomb, runs to tell others about it. She comes first to John, the one who Jesus loved, as he explains here in the text, and Peter, and tells them what takes place. Well, their immediate response was due to the same thing that she did, is run and get as quickly as possible to the tomb. I do find it funny uh, that they, uh, that uh, John, as he's telling the account, makes sure that everyone knows that he is loved and he also makes sure to know that he beat Peter in the race to the tomb. I find that very, it says both of them are running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, making sure we're clear on that. He even rubs it in a little further. He says, then Simon Peter came following him. Okay, John, we get it. You're faster than Peter. But I love the humanity that we glimpses we get in this as the account unfolds. They arrived there, and what did they discover? They discovered a number of things. Probably the first thing they discovered the same thing that Mary would have seen, that the, that the, that the stone had been moved from its entrance, that the massive stone, and, and notice who, who's missing from the scene. There's no longer any Roman soldiers guarding this tomb. Basically finding the empty tomb and then discovering as they look inside, discovering that what's left are the grave clothes, including the cloth that was covering Jesus's face. Basically some major clues that would have disrupted Mary's conclusion that Jesus's body had been stolen, if you think about it. it basically no grave robber would unwrap a smelly, decaying, brutally beaten corpse before stealing it. And they definitely wouldn't have taken the time to fold up the linen that was covering his face. So here, kind of even without them realizing, they, even with those details, were dispelling the possibility that his body had been stolen. So we're told after they observed this, it says, John himself says that he saw and believed. Well, you're like, well, what did he see and believe? There's some debate over this, but I would, I would suggest that he saw and believed what Mary had told them, that his body had been stolen. Because right after that, in verse 9, we're told, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Gotta wonder, why, why is that? Why was, was Jesus vague about what was going to take place? That's not at all the case. In fact, Jesus took his time to make sure that the disciples were crystal clear on what was coming. Matthew 16, 21 says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and 
on the third day be raised. Obviously, he spelled it out. But this was a group, as I've alluded to, that was clearly a little slow in connecting the dots. But before we get too judgmental with that, those of us that are listening that can point to a, a time where you've embraced Jesus Christ, you might look back and consider all the radical things that Jesus had to do to finally get your attention, what it took for him to, to shake you, to, to wake you to the reality of his love and his pursuit after you, or maybe the person that's been saved for a long time and you reflect back and you start to think of like, man, he did this, he did this. You can see all the ways that he revealed himself to you that weren't obvious in the moment. I'm sure that's the case with Peter, John, and Mary Magdalene. Continue in the text. So first off, good news today that the resurrection is for the confused. We also see that the resurrection is for the brokenhearted. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you, had if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had and what and that he had said these things to her. All right, we'll pause there. Obviously a pretty powerful scene, but it starts with the, the picture of a broken hearted woman. I don't know if you've ever been in a season or stretch of life where things just get piled on you. One uh, mishap, one hardship, one uh, a dose of bad news, and it just seems like it's more than you can handle. And the only response is to just break down in tears. I think that's a powerful image of Mary standing outside of the tomb and it says, weeping. Doesn't say crying. Weeping has a little bit more of a picture of losing control. She's basically raw, from the whole experience that she's had. Imagine her, the, the one who had rescued her, the one who had provided hope, the, the one that she loved, all of a sudden taken from her and brutally murdered, obviously leaving her raw and then waking up on the, the morning of the, the resurrection to find his body had been stolen. This was more than she could handle. It's interesting that in her broken place, in her broken state, she was so distraught that she didn't see, that she didn't see the presence of the Lord right in front of her. 
first wave, she didn't recognize, I imagine tear-filled eyes, she didn't recognize that she was interacting and talking with angels. Anytime in scripture there's an encounter with angels, it's usually with shock and wonder and awe. Obviously, her tear-filled eyes didn't let her see what God was doing in that very moment. Some of us, if we're honest, lose track of what God's doing in our hardship because we're so fixated on the pain that we're in. That, but that doesn't mean that God's not still at work. That doesn't mean that God's still not pursuing us. Jesus in his patience and kindness, he breaks in. If you think about it, the, first the angels ask, why are you weeping? But he doesn't wait for them to be the messengers of this good news. He interrupts and asks her a second time, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? She doesn't recognize him at first. I find it interesting that she assumes that he's a gardener. We have a kind of a funny story my wife and I uh, laugh about with that. We had one point where we had our sprinkler system break down and the gentleman that was helping us solve it, his name was Jesus. And so we had a, a lot of fun when Adrian was texting me and explaining to me and the way it's spelled, obviously, that Jesus is fixing our sprinklers right now. And we were, we were joking because it was like, man, that's great news. But here he's mistaken for the, the gardener but what changes things? What finally causes her to wake up for her eyes to be open? What happens is he calls her by name. He calls her by name. There's something about when Jesus calls you by name, when he pursues you and personally engages with you, all of a sudden eyes are opened I got to believe this Easter as we're listening that there's somebody on the other end of this that he's calling by name even in these moments with this account. Someone that's brokenhearted, somebody that he's pursuing that's saying, I'm still here even amidst your pain, allowing him to break through and the rescue that he wants to offer. So here he's being personal with the person that's, that's brokenhearted. And it's kind of cool to think about that. that. Even in the middle of this, he starts saying, you know what? I've got a job for you to do. He shakes her out of her sorrow. It says, I've got a, a message for you to share. I want you to be the one, the very first encounter with the risen Lord. I want you to be the one to run and tell the disciples Kind of cool to see the, the idea shattering any gender hierarchy that's kind of suggested in scripture. Jesus' first encounter is with a woman charging her to go and share. But I find it neat that she's not ready to quite yet to be the first evangelist. He has to first tell her, don't cling to me. He makes all of these connections and reminders of things to share with them that the relationship with the father has been restored. Such amazing news for Mary to share with the disciples, even in her place of being brokenhearted. Continue in the text as the story unfolds. Verse 19, as the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, 
he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. All right, we'll explain that. First off, what's going on, what's taking place is the disciples are hiding behind closed doors. Uh, that tells us obviously that, that Peter and John had not connected the dots if they're in the mix of this group, that they hadn't connected the dots that Jesus had risen. They hadn't believed quite yet because they needed him to arrive and show himself to reveal. But their fear is justified. Think about it. They have just watched Jesus himself being crucified, being tortured, being whipped, being mutilated on that cruel Roman cross. You can see why they would be literally hiding in fear for their lives, obviously being associated and connected to him. But Jesus enters this locked room. We've alluded to that even in our past series, how cool that is in a picture of the resurrected body and some of its capabilities. He arrives there in the midst of their fear and he greets them. And the way that he greets them, I find interesting because it was a, a pretty traditional greeting. He says, peace be with you. That would be something that somebody would say, just wanting, uh, just hoping for their well-being, just kind of a, a standard or generic greeting. But all of a sudden, that description means a little something different when it's coming from the risen Lord. You see, he had done a lot of work that allowed for peace to be with them. You see, our sin creates enmity between us and our God. And there's no potential for peace. It's a good well-wishing, but the possibility of it is not there apart from the resurrected Jesus. He goes on to start showing them his wounds, the wounds that he acquired in order to provide them the peace that they longed for. If you think about it, the greatest antidote for fear is peace. Why is it the greatest antidote? Because when you have peace with God, everything else seems to solve itself. When you no longer have fear over life and death and what's to happen to you, what does he then go on to do with his disciples? Again, he grants them peace and he charges them. He charges them. Basically, the, the great commission, he says, so I am sending you. He's sending them out with the message of rescue that he offers. If you think about this, I was pausing just even in my study. I'm like, what is he doing with fearful people here? Two things. First thing, He's offering them peace that can only be found by the, his finished work on the cross. Second thing he offers is he offers them a mission, a mission to go rescue as many people as possible. All of a sudden, any fear and cowering in that hidden room is gone. I'm no longer afraid of my future and I'm, I'm on a rescue mission. You see that so many times when somebody has a charge or a call on their life to try to save somebody else's life. They're just like, my safety is of no concern any longer with the hope of maybe rescuing others. For us, there's some great takeaways even for that in our own lives, that we can't be somebody that's gripped and cowering with fear when there's lives on the line. Jesus calls us to the same thing, to experience his peace and the mission that he's called them to. 
And the thing that makes us possible to overcome our fears and to pursue his mission is exactly what, he, what we see here. He says to them, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the same knucklehead that had just abandoned him a few days later. Now he's giving them the hope and rescue plan for the world. The reason he can entrust that to them is because they have now indwelled by the Holy Spirit who will empower them. Says something at the last section of this that might be a little bit confusing. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It basically doesn't mean that the disciples are the new go-to for the forgiveness of sin. A lot of times the, the people are confused with that. The Catholic Church actually takes that to validate the idea that ordained priests have authority to forgive sins, but it goes against what 1 Timothy 2.15 explains, that there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. A better interpretation and understanding of that, a correct one, would be the authority that's entrusted to us to proclaim forgiveness for those who believe and repent. I can do that even present day. I can say, rightfully proclaim, your sins have been forgiven when you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ. I can rightfully say to the person that has dug in their heels and has a hard heart, I can say, you know what? You're still in your sins until you embrace his finished work. That's the charge that he gives them to snap them out of fear. Continuing in the account of the resurrection, verse 24, it says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. We don't know why. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Same thing. Then he said to Thomas, powerful description, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. If you think about it, it's kind of a, a bummer if your name is legendary for doubt. And that's what Thomas, they mentioned his name being the twin here because, because he was a twin. But the doubt, doubting part is really what he's notorious for present day. We call him doubting Thomas because of this interaction, because of his, his reservation and believing. It's kind of a, a bummer when we're actually known because of our failure. I heard one pastor pointing out that Peter was known for cursing out a group that asked if he was a disciple, but nobody calls him profanity Peter. Imagine present day if we started being called out for our failings, hypocrite Holly or counterfeit Chris or tantrum Tim. Obviously, those are pretend names, but this is what Thomas is known for. But really, as you consider Thomas, I actually don't have a problem with where Thomas is coming from. Thomas is a little bit skeptical. 
He's, he's, he's questioning. He wants to see before he believes. We all know that person, the person that you try to explain. Oh, things are, things are gonna look better on the, on the other side of this. So you'll, you'll eventually get through this, uh, th- this tunnel. You'll, the, things are brighter on the other side. And he's like, no, that's a train coming. Or the person that you're just like, no, it's gonna improve. And they're like, no, that's, I'm just being realistic. But here he is, what he says, he says, I will believe once I see. But what I discover is that Jesus, obviously here, doesn't mind that person. Doesn't mind the person that is actually willing to say, I will believe if I see. Because that's something he can work with. What he can't work with is the skeptic that's already made up their mind. Maybe somebody that's listening right now that has their arms crossed and says, I don't care what evidence you show me, I'm never going to budge. In this instance, Thomas, he was somebody that if he saw evidence, he's like, all right, I'm in. God's like, all right, that is somebody I can work with. And so he chooses to meet the demands of Thomas. Think about that. That's kind of crazy. Jesus doesn't have to meet anybody's demands, but he shows up. And what does he say? All right, Thomas, go ahead. Touch, touch my hands. Put your finger in my side. You can, f- you can see and feel the wounds that are going to set you free. And what I love is the response that Thomas has to this. It's the response, it's the invitation and hope that everyone would respond. He says, after Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe, Thomas confesses, he says, my Lord and my God. You see, the proof was undeniable. He couldn't resist it any longer. He calls him out for who he actually is. God in the flesh and lordship is key. Saying, I am now submitting to you. This is a beautiful conversion picture. It's always been the intent of an encounter with the resurrected Jesus is for us to come to the exact same conclusion. The person with the greatest doubts now expressing faith so crystal clear. That's always been the intent, even as we see in verse 30. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, all of this is written so that we believe and have life in his name. This is not a story to entertain. I have the same intent that this book has. It's not to share a story or a historical event, but to actually provide the option for every single listener to hear, believe, and see their lives radically transformed. But I also don't want to sell some kind of uh, easy beliefism, this idea that, yeah, yeah, I believe like intellectual assent. Like, yes, I believe that Jesus came and rose again. And then I go right back to kind of living as if he hadn't. You see what, what Thomas did was actually an appropriate response is calling him Lord and God. When someone is Lord and God, obviously there's some changes that are going to need to take place. There's a turning over of the reins that happens. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it's also the most satisfying choice you will ever make. 
You see, this Easter, this resurrection uh, weekend, this is the time that we slow down and we consider the evidence, that we get a chance to, to see the wounds, to see what happened, to see the events that took place, these eyewitness accounts of first people that encountered Jesus. We're told that over 500 more encountered Jesus, the resurrected Jesus on the other side of this. And we're left with a decision to make. So even as I wrap up this service now, I would love just even as I pray, pray that someone may be listening right now that can't point to a time where they've ever bent a knee and embraced Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, that that might even take place in these moments now. Will you bow with me and consider that? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your choice to intervene on our behalf. We were lost. We were beyond rescue. There was nothing we could do to remedy our situation until you stepped in, until you came, until you bore our sins. The, the payment that was demanded of us, you absorbed that. You came off of the throne to come down to absorb the penalty that was owed by us, God. My hope and my prayer is that someone listening right now would choose to call out to you, say, God, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I deserve that payment for my sin. I've fallen short of your perfect standard, but now I embrace you as Savior, as Lord, as God of my life. And I wanna turn over the reins completely to you. God, I know that choice will never be one that's regretted. It'll radically change their present day and their eternity. We thank you again for Easter. We thank you for the rescue mission that you went on and the rescue mission that you invite us to be a part of. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.